Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Psalms of Refuge. So turning your Bibles to Psalm chapter 11, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Lord is My Refuge. Psalm 11 is another psalm of David when he's being pursued by his enemies. By now, you know, if you've been following this study through the early psalms, that theme should be very familiar. But in this psalm, there's a twist. It would seem that David's enemies have been so successful in their battle against him that his friends, recognizing how bad things have become, have encouraged him to run for his life. From their perspective, the fight is over. David is lost. Now, as we will see, David doesn't tell us at which point in his life these events came about. We might imagine him crossing the Kidron Valley, then up the steep incline, up the Mount of Olives as he flees Jerusalem. On that occasion, he was fleeing from his son Absalom. Or we might remember the days when David was still a very young man while he was serving in King Saul's court. Eventually, Saul gave the order to kill David, and we might remember when David's young wife, Michal, put an idol in the bed to give the impression that he was still there, and then tried to convince the assassins that he had forced her not to say a word. You know, in that time, it looked like even his wife had turned against him. Now, as we know, in both of those cases, David did run for his life. But as we also know, while running from Saul, David didn't leave Israel. That was the place of God's heritage. And in the case of Absalom, we we see him simply regrouping and readying himself for the fight. See, in neither of those cases was he prepared to accept the idea that the fight was over. Of course, because the psalm doesn't contain any word of explanation as to, you know, which situation he's referring to, it does no good to speculate. We simply have to accept that David was at the point where it seemed like he was defeated and his friends said, it's time to admit defeat and run for your life. As we'll see from reading the psalm, David simply will not give up. Yeah, he's a fighter, but there is more. His hope is in God, and he believes that God has a destiny for him. Because of God, his attitude will be different from the counsel of his well-meaning friends. And that leads us, before we get into the actual study of this psalm, to ask ourselves how we are to understand this psalm and how we are to apply it to our own lives. Should we simply tell the story of something that happened at one point in David's life, or should we be looking for a wider application true of all of God's people? See, I'm convinced that this psalm is of great value for all of God's people today. Psalm 11 should be studied by all God's people when the struggle in our lives becomes greater than we can handle. In short, if there's one thing that should mark the people of God, it's their resiliency. After all, our hope is in God. So listen to the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the theme of Psalm 11. It has to do with the reality of being considered sheep to be slaughtered when all hope of deliverance is gone. And then from the depths of the pit, finding that the godly hard-pressed can find deliverance. 
You know, when I state things in that fashion, you might also think about, you know, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Bible indicates that God is the God of the impossible. He defends his glory as well as those who fear his name. We only know if we believe that when we're hard-pressed and there is no earthly hope for us. It's only then that we discover what we believe about the mighty power of God. Well, I hope you now see the basis for understanding why Psalm 11 is important for believers today. It's because the Apostle Paul once said that he was so hard-pressed that he had despaired of life itself. And we also know from Revelation 13, verse 7, that the coming Antichrist will be allowed to make war on the saints and then to conquer them. That's a frightful account. How could a future ruler conquer the people of God? Do you see, whether we're talking about an enemy that attacks us or a reversal of fortune that overwhelms us or a ministry demand that is too hard for us to bear or a study of eschatology in which we find this matter so difficult, whatever we think, we should see Psalm 11 rather than simply another psalm of lament, but rather a psalm that we should savor. We should say, oh Lord, teach me from the life of David to have the same tough faith that he had. I hope I have your interest. Psalm 11 can be divided into two sections. The first section, verses one to three, is a description of the situation David faced and the advice that came from friends who did not have the same level of faith that David had. So let's read. In the Lord I take refuge, How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? See, David begins by describing his outlook on the dangerous situation that has arisen in his life. He sees exactly what his friends see. They're right now on the edge of disaster. So from the external, objective, and physical perspective, David and his friends both see the situation in exactly the same manner. But that's where the similarities end. David thinks he's in a safe place. He begins by saying that he's taken refuge already in the Lord. And at least, so it would seem, his friends haven't grasped that concept. See, I remember once having a conversation with a woman who is a missionary. She was working in a large American inner city environment in an area of a city known for its violence and lawlessness and constant threats. She herself had been threatened with rape on a number of occasions. She never knew when she would go and minister to a broken and hurting young girl or a girl to be rescued from sex trafficking. She never knew on what occasion her enemies would set out upon her. And I asked her, how can you carry on under such pressure? And she looked at me calmly and said, any Christian in the center of God's will, even in the most dangerous place in the world, is safer than anyone else in the world, no matter how safe it seems for them. She was stating what David was stating. I'm walking with God and following his directives in my life. And consequently, I've already taken refuge in God's will and in his power, in his wise designs for my life. I rest secure that only that which God ordains can occur. You know, please understand, with that perspective, it's very hard to imagine that David would be panicked by a great threat. He's not. Now, in contrast to David's attitude in faith are, you know, dear friends who are very concerned for him. And that's the fascinating part of this psalm. These friends care about him deeply, and yet, at the very same time, they lack faith. 
For that reason, the counsel they give David is the worst possible counsel. It's almost as if they're seeking to mislead him, even though they don't intend that. You know, imagine the Apostle Paul. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. After, you know, wearying missionary work, he arrives in Caesarea. He's on his way now to Jerusalem. And and a prophet by the name of Agabus tells him that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound and imprisoned. And on hearing this, the Christian church in Caesarea begs him, don't go. Flee like a bird to the mountains. Don't complete the assignment that you have. Now, without going into how important Paul's assignment was, think about what's going on here. Christian people who love Jesus are saying, don't go, Paul. You're going to suffer when you do. It's all a terrible mistake. And that's what's happening to David. His closest friends are saying, the battle is over. See, when they say, flee like a bird to the mountain, and what they're expressing, you know, is a very typical Near Eastern way of expressing things. You know, birds fly to the forest when they're in danger. And you, David, you need to be just like them. You need to run to a place where you can be safe. And then, just in case David didn't get it, they add that the wicked have bent the bow. See, imagine the image. It's striking. Imagine being on the battlefield and you see the archers. They're able to strike you from a distance, but if they're getting out their bows or if they're fumbling for their arrows or if they're still at the stage of measuring wind speed and direction, well, you've got a chance against them. But once the arrow is fitted and the bow is bent, all that remains now is to let the arrow fly. See, at that point, you're at the mercy of the archer. And David's friends are saying, all the advantage now belongs to our enemy. You're about to die. You have no other recourse. Run for your life. But David has another thought, not the one about his own death, but the thought of what should occur if the foundations are destroyed. What can that mean? You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult. In order to understand what David meant when he spoke of the foundations, we've, we've got to imagine what it meant for David. Because we can't tell when in David's life he wrote this psalm, you know, we are in a position to guess. So let's assume that He writes this psalm while he's already the king. Then the foundations he's describing probably refer to law and order, even the stability of the state, the nation of Israel. You know, if I just up and run, 
Then the nation descends into chaos and anarchy. That's what David says. So what will the righteous do? In other words, he says that he has an obligation to protect the many godly men and women who depend on David continuing to function in his office even when things are very dangerous. He owes this to everyone. But what if David wrote this psalm before he became king? What foundations would he be talking about then? Well, in truth, Samuel the prophet had come to David with a word from God. He was the next king of Israel, and furthermore, King Saul was becoming an insane king, vindictive, destructive, a dictator who threatened the lives of many people. Again, if David simply abandons God's destiny for his life, the foundations of the nations are at stake. That's what David saw was at play. So you might want to reflect on that, will you? Think of Jesus in the wilderness with Satan coming to tempt him, that he should abandon the mission of suffering that the Father had prepared for him. What would have been the outcome had Jesus succumbed and fallen into sin? See, the entire hope of a sin-cursed, dying world was at stake as Jesus wrestled with the evil one. It was as if the foundations of everything saw a seismic tremor passing through. And in a smaller way, we all play that role. See, if you're a married man and you give in to adultery, the foundations of a firm marriage and a secure environment for your precious children are at stake. See, what should occur if you only think of yourself and not about the lives of those who depend on you? And that's David. His friends don't have the faith David has that God is his fortress, nor do they have the wisdom of knowing what a given course of action would mean for the nation If the foundation is shaken, what will the righteous do? And so, with so much at stake and with so much danger, David pens the last section of this wonderful psalm, Psalm 11. So here I'm reading verses 4 to 7. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals On the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. When you are at a place of breaking, and when it seems to you that you've been defeated, and that all you can think about is running to the farthest place on earth and hiding in a cave somewhere, think of David's words there for you. For say with David, the Lord is in his holy temple. See, when I read those words, I can't help but think of Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus is there addressing the seven churches of Asia. Roman imperial persecution has reached a level that the church has never seen before. And the church seems so powerless. They could only imagine what the imperial might of Rome could yet do to them. And then at the end of Revelation chapter 3, well, surprise of surprise, comes Revelation chapter 4, in which John is taken up into heaven and sees the God who is seated on his throne, enthroned in his temple. Oh, my. How insignificant is the power of men? If only we had the eyes to see that God is in his holy temple. And this is always the test of our faith, is it not? Can we see what the natural man would never envision? God, the holy God, to whom all must pay homage, is seated in the place of holiness. There are times when the best thing in the world is to do nothing more than to get an image of holiness and majesty. The lack of such a vision has caused fear and panic rather than faith and courage and calmness of soul. Get a vision of God in his holy temple. Second, when we're afraid, we need to say with David, yes, 
The Lord's throne is in heaven, for that is the place of exaltation. But also, the one who sits in heaven has eyes to see, and he tests the children of men. We might here think of Jesus' words in Luke 8, verse 17, where he said, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. That is to say, there are no secrets with God. His eyes examine all things thoroughly, fully bringing everything into the light, both actions and attitudes, past events, future plans. God's never surprised. God is never neglectful of anything. All things have his full attention at all times. You and I don't notice some things. He is not like us. So we have said two things with David. Here's the third. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So do you think, even for a moment, that God does not know the difference between good and evil or between actions that have the good in mind and actions that are intent on evil? Do you think God to be naive? When he examines the righteous, do you think he fails to understand what they are? And when he examines the wicked, do you think he fails to understand what they are? See, in the final day of judgment, Jesus says he's going to pass through the sea of humanity and he's going to separate out everyone who's ever lived as a shepherd separates out the sheep from the goats. Do you think he's doing that on a hunch or based on a gut feeling or based on an incomplete set of facts? Of course not. He does this because his eyes have thoroughly examined every single human being. And if that's so, and you're being hard-pressed, don't you ever think that God doesn't see. He sees. Now then, just seeing those three things, God seated on his heavenly throne, God carefully observing all things, and God judging all that he sees, doesn't reflecting and meditating on that change how you view the present danger. But of course, as we have seen, David is still not done. Verse 6 says, Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now, that language of raining coals of fire and sulfur on the wicked, well, that's language that David borrows from the book of Genesis. He calls to mind the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis does give us the description of those two cities. You know, Genesis 19 begins by saying that, you know, two angels came to Lot. They had been sent by God to discover just how wicked the culture of those cities had become. Now, of course, God knew everything there was to know, but he sends the angels for our benefit, not for his. He knows that we need to know that when he destroys a culture, he doesn't do it wantonly. And so the angels enter the city and Lot takes them in to be his guests. In the ancient Near East, the idea of protecting the traveler was considered to be an obligation. But the men of Sodom want to drag the two men out. They, they don't know their angels, and they want to rape them. And that's what this culture had become. And as the previous chapter reminds us, there was not left in those two cities even ten righteous people. And then when the patience of God had been exhausted, God rained down fire and sulfur. That judgment of those two cities are a reminder of the final judgment, but also reminds us that God stands ready to intervene at any moment. And that's what David is recounting. God never stands idly by. Scriptures made that abundantly clear. And so how would it be any different in that day when David looks like he thinks he's defeated? See, God is watching. It's not that David is in such trouble. Rather, David sees the matter as it truly is. The wicked are in a disastrous place, for they face the God of judgment. 
Now then, comes the, the last verse in this psalm, a verse that gave David the confidence not to accept the advice of his well-meaning friends. Verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. In order to understand the significance of that statement, we would do well to put it into context that's familiar to us. What is it that you love? Let's say you answer, well, I love my kids. Well then, if you do, what's your response to those whom you love? Well, the answer is, I feed them at my expense. I clothe them at my expense and so forth. You spend countless hours helping them with their homework. You make sure they learn the scripture and understand the foundations of Christian doctrine. At great expense, at the cost of much of your free time, you pour everything you have into the object of your love and delight. That's what it means to love. Now, very good. Notice what David says. First, the Lord is righteous. He's not sometimes righteous and sometimes a little less so. He's always righteous. And this righteous God loves the righteous deeds of his children. And so, knowing that to be the case, that David is the object of God's delight, why then would David accept the advice of his friends? And you, my dear listener, would you take this to heart? Are you tempted and tried? Are you being persecuted right now? Is the cost of obedience to Jesus seemingly more than you can bear? Does the matter of being faithful to your calling seem like more than you had bargained for? And for all those reasons, are you thinking of dropping out and fleeing to a place where all those difficulties will simply go away. If that's you, go back and reread Psalm 11. Remember the very first words of this wonderful psalm. Say it aloud. Say, in the Lord I take refuge, and then be satisfied. Thanks for your message today, John. You know, it's human nature in difficult circumstances to either fight or run. How do we know what the correct response is? <laughs> yeah, I, I, boy, I wish I had that answer in every circumstance, but you know, many times we're just going to have to, you know, use some judgment, but as we use judgment, we should be asking ourselves some very important questions. If I decide that flight is the way to go, and it can be that, what then will be the consequences of taking flight? You know, when David talks about the foundations, clearly, He's asking us to consider what the fallout would be of, you know, our actions. And so I, I think that's a key question that we need to ask ourselves. And then I think we need to simply choose. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as we conclude our series, Psalms of Refuge, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The days we have are precious, and how we use our days matter. Dr. John helps us to consider how we spend our time in ways that matter for eternity in his series, The Time of Your Life. Why is time so important? Well, it's a scarce commodity. It's uncertain how many days we have. Time can never be recovered, and our use of time can introduce either light or darkness. Paul's exhortation to the church in Ephesus is so true for us today. We should be a church longing to live as those who are wise, making the very best use of our time. This is a high calling, but a worthy calling. 
This month, request Dr. Newfeld's series, The Time of Your Life, on CD as our free gift to you. And to support Bible teaching with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.